You're listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Fellowship Baptist Church is located in Clark Lake, Michigan. Today's message is part of our Adult Sunday School series. Adult Sunday School is taught by a variety of different men in our church. Now let's prepare our hearts as our Sunday School teacher brings forth God's truths from His Word today. We are going to be... We are just going to go ahead and we're going to do a quick review over what we went over last week and then we're going to get in today's lesson. So we covered four points last week and the first of those points was we talked about our foundation and we saw that in verse 5 that for us as believers our foundation of hope. In verse 5 it talks about our foundation of hope and how that foundation is built upon all of God's promises but especially on the promise of eternal life. That is the greatest promise we have. That's what our foundation of hope is built upon. We saw that the source of that hope is the gospel. Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That is the source of our hope. Without the gospel, we would be hopeless. We would have no hope. We talked about not only would we not have hope for eternity, but we would be hopeless down here on earth as well, right? We would have nothing to live for. If it wasn't for knowing that our eternal home was with God in heaven and we would be rewarded for all that we've done, not only down here on earth, but also in heaven, that would take away our purpose really to live in life. So the gospel is our source of hope. Our th- third point we covered is that salvation is for the whole world. Praise the, praise the Lord, the salvation is for everyone. God does not discriminate against a certain group of people. We talked about that. Not against a certain, you know, not against the wealthy or against the poor, or against a certain country or nationality. God does not discriminate. Salvation is for everyone. You know, I feel bad for people that believe that salvation is not for everyone. You know, the doctrine where they say, you know, Calvinists say that God only predestines and elects certain people to be saved. That's what Calvinists say. You know, and they believe that before God even created the world, he already predecided who was going to be saved. He already predecided who he was going to elect to be his people. You know, and so they, they, they believe in free will, but not when it comes to salvation. They say that that if God has pre-elected somebody, they have no choice whether they want to be saved or not. God literally draws them, and they have no free will in the matter. Well, I praise the Lord that the Bible is very clear that God calls all men to be saved. You know, if I, if I knew that God only elected a certain amount of people to be saved, and it wasn't everybody in the world, you know what I would always struggle with? If I did come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, I would always struggle with the assurity of my salvation. I would always think to myself, am I really one of God? You know, I think I'm saved, but am I really one of God's elect? Since it's not for everybody, did I really make the cut with God? I mean, look at me. You, I would always struggle with the assurance of my salvation. I don't know about you, but that's how I feel personally. That would be a lifelong struggle for me if I was a Calvinist, and that's the way I believe. But praise the Lord, the gospel's for everyone. Whosoever will may come. The fourth point that we covered was True believers produce fruit. We saw in this point that abiding in the vine, which is Jesus Christ, if we are abiding in that vine, if we are true believers, we are simply just extensions of Jesus Christ. And we are to produce fruit similar to the quality and nature of the vine that we are attached to as believers, which is Jesus Christ. Fruit similar to the nature and quality of the vine. We saw that the righteous fruit that is produced in a Christian's life is anything righteous that God produces through his actions, 
through his thoughts or through his words. You know, the song lyrics come to mind, the things I used to do, I don't do them anymore, right? The things I used to wear, the things I used to say, the things I used to think, all these things this song talks about, I don't do these anymore. Why? Because since I have, what, lose the words of my mind, there's been a great change since I've been born again, right? That Sunday school song that we all grew up, there's been a great change since I've been born again. And all these changes, all those changes in our life, what those are, those are simply fruit that God is producing as a result of you and I being grafted into the true vine, Jesus Christ. Those are all fruit that he's producing in us. You know, one point that I didn't bring out when it comes to um, the production of fruit in a believer's life that we could do a whole lesson on, honestly, is um, the opportunity that God gives us not only to produce fruit in our own lives, but to help nurture the fruit that God wants to produce in others' lives as well. Help nurture the fruit that God wants to produce in other lives as well. This is one of the great blessings that God has given us as Christians, is to be given the opportunity to help produce this fruit in other people's lives, to help nurture and cultivate the soil of their heart. Are we the type of Christians? This is a question we all need to ask ourselves. Are we the type of Christians that help the growth of fruit in another believer's life? Or are we the type of Christians that help stunt the growth of fruit in another believer's life? Either you're helping the growth of fruit in someone else's life, or you're stunting the growth of fruit. You know, as I examined my own life, yes, of course, I can look back and I can see areas and ways in which God has used me to help the growth of fruit in, in, in another person's life. But as I examine it as a whole, to me, it seems like I have been used to stunt the growth of fruit in other people's lives more than I've been used to help nurture and cultivate the growth of fruit in other people's lives. And that's a very sad thing. I don't know if that's the case for you, but as I examine my own life and think about it, you know, I think that I have fallen on the side of stunting the growth of fruit more than, praise the Lord, hopefully if he gives me a lot more life, that the scales will tip the other way and God will use most of my life to help grow fruit in other people's lives as well. We all must ask ourselves the question, are my words, my actions, and my attitudes helping produce the fruit in others, or are they doing the opposite and stunting the growth of fruit? You know, it's a scary thing. The Bible says it's a scary thing to fall in the hands of an angry God, right? So it's a scary thing, you know, if we all have a healthy fear of the Lord like we should, to think about that day, and not only in heaven one day when we stand before God, but the fact that we have to give an account to God for everything that we do, right? So we have to give an account in heaven, and not only that, but we have to give an account to God down here on earth. We are accountable to God for our actions because we are his. At the moment of salvation, we become God, we become part of his family. He is our father. He is responsible for chastising us. You know, he is responsible for judging us. We are part of his family, and we are responsible for ourselves, but not only ourselves, you, me, we are responsible for how our fruit, how our actions, our attitudes, our words affect other people, right? We aren't just responsible for ourselves. We get so secluded in this bubble like, hey, what I do only affects me. No, we don't understand that and a lot of times this shows, this shows forth in our attitude. You know, it's not even words that we have to say, but we're just having a bad attitude about something and that negatively affects somebody else and causes them to have a bad attitude about it. You know, I'm guilty of that. <laughs> almost every day, so that's not good. But, 
You know, I'm constantly getting frustrated. I said that last week over things, you know, and you know, your bad attitude and your, your negativity rubs off on other people, and then you're accountable. You're causing them to have a bad attitude, and you're, you're accountable to God for how you affected that other person. So let's make sure that we're falling on the right side of the coin here and that we're being used to help produce and cultivate fruit in people's life and not stunt the growth of fruit. And that brings us to where we are today, which is we're going to be back in verse 6 of Colossians. So let's go ahead and go to chapter 1 and verse 6, and we'll read that through. We covered the first part of that last week. But we'll be in the second part of that today. First Colossians 1 verse 6, not 1 Colossians. Oh my word, I think I did that last time. Colossians 1, 6. I don't know why I got that in my head. For some reason, that always just comes to my head. Even when I'm going through my lessons, 1 Colossians comes to my mind. I don't, I don't know why. Oh, whatever. All right, Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. Which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, which is what we talked about last week, as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it. Now, I want to look at that middle part, since the day ye heard of it. What Paul is saying here is immediately since the day that the Colossians heard about the truth of the gospel and got gloriously saved, it started to produce fruit in their lives immediately. Since the day ye heard of it, fruit was being produced. Salvation for the sinner is an extreme transformation, isn't it? It is an extreme transformation. It's not just something where God comes down and you become a believer and God's like, okay, good job, you, you, you believe in me, I'm just going to change a couple little things around, make a couple little adjustments here, and then you'll be good to go. No. I mean, salvation is an extreme experience for the believer. It is an extreme change, right? In order to be saved, what must take place is genuine repentance, right? In order for you to be saved, what must take place is genuine repentance. And on that note, you know what? I think that that is what is missing out of a lot of believers, so-called believers' life today. They ask the Lord to come into their heart. You know, they say, okay, I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven. But there's never true repentance that takes place, which means they're never truly born again. But if you do truly repent with an understanding of this is where I am, this is what I'm doing, I'm living, <clears throat> I'm living for the devil, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm living for my flesh. I'm going to repent of these sins that I know that I have committed against God that make me worthy of an eternal punishment in the lake of fire. I'm going to repent of those sins, and to the best of my ability with God's help, I'm going to make a complete 180, and I'm going to go in the opposite direction of where my life was headed. That's repentance. That is what the decision that a true believer makes. Now, that is an extreme difference. To be going this way and stop and turn around and go this way, you can't have more of an opposite change of direction than that. Okay? Acts 26, 18 says, Our eyes become open. We turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. We receive forgiveness of sins, that tremendous sin burden that we all carried before salvation. We receive forgiveness of those sins, and that burden is lifted off of us. That is an extreme transformation. And if it's not, then I don't know what your definition of an extreme transformation is. That is an extreme transformation for a believer. Such an extreme transformation cannot take place without some change in your life. 
Such a transformation cannot take place without some change in your life. If a person asks the Lord into their lives and a couple days goes by, or a couple weeks and a couple months, and that person never really feels any different and never sees any change in their life and no fruit is being produced that they can tell of, it is a good chance that that person did not truly get born again. Because if you did, there will, Paul says, since the day ye heard of it, it was producing fruit. It will produce fruit and it will produce fruit immediately. Now, I'm not saying that every, every person's salvation experience is the same, right? We know that salvation is experienced different. Some people have a very emotional salvation experience where they're just in tears and they're crying and, you know, they feel that big weight of that sin being lifted off their shoulders and they've given that testimony and they get very emotional when they get saved. But some people don't cry at all when they get saved, do they? But emotion, emotion does not determine the condition of your heart. Whether you are truly a repentant and truly ask God to save you of your sins determines the condition of your heart. And if you did get truly saved, you will have a change. Now, I'm not saying that a newly born again believer has become a passionate soul winner overnight, right? That's not going to happen. Some people do. Some people begin, immediately get on fire for the Lord. I mean, they are telling everybody, and that's awesome. That's what we should all do. But that's not how everybody reacts after they get saved. That's not immediately what happens. You know, every bad habit that we, ha that we had before salvation, as soon as we got saved, that habit didn't just melt away. You know, a lot of times God does give newly converted believers victory over those bad habits they used to have of drinking or smoking or partying or whatever. But not always is that the case. I mean, you can be saved your whole life and you're still struggling with things that, you're, that you need to give over to the Lord, right? So it doesn't mean that you become a perfect person overnight. No, but what it does mean, since the day you heard of it, Paul said, it's producing fruit. What it does mean is it will, if you do truly get born again, it will truly produce immediate change in your life. And that change will be noticeable. It will produce change in your life. Salvation brings immediate change. All right, let's immediate change. Let's move on to the rest of verse 6. The last part of verse 6 says, and knew the grace of God in truth. And knew the grace of God in truth. My second point today is God's grace is enough. God's grace is enough. Grace is the undeserved and unmerited favor and blessing of God. The key to understanding God's grace is understanding that man does not deserve favor or blessing from God, and he cannot earn it in any way, shape, or form. Satan has tried to pervert man's understanding of God's grace throughout time and throughout history and has convinced scores of people that it's not just grace, but it's grace plus works. He's convinced many of that. This is one of the great deceptions of Satan, and many have believed this deception. And you can see how people believe that they have to do something to get to heaven, because grace is such an amazing thing that God gives us. It is such an amazing thing, God's grace. To be like, okay, I am so undeserving of God in heaven, but he's just going to, because he loves me enough, 
just extend his grace and forgive me. You know, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow. Salvation is easy to understand, but not everybody believes that it's just that simple. They think they have to do something. That's why the, the Bible is so full of verses that we don't. That's not how it is. Praise the Lord. But Satan has convinced many people of that. So this is what I believe Paul was talking about when he said, and knew the grace of God in truth. This is to say the Colossians understood the truth about God's grace. They understood that it was God's grace alone and not God's grace plus works. Now there were many in Paul's days that many in Paul's day that believed that they had to do good works to be saved, right? Many believed that. Obviously, they believed that they had to do good works to be saved. In Paul's day, throughout history and today, there are still people, many who believe that, you know, especially the Catholic Church firmly believes that, you know, you have to be a good person and do good works in order to get your way into heaven. But I believe that's what Paul was saying. He said, you knew the grace of God in truth. It's not a works salvation. There are many, and I know that we all know the difference between a works salvation and uh, grace through faith. I know that we know that, and I considered not touching on it, you know, at all, but I felt the Lord leading me to go over this. So all I can do is just do what I felt like the Lord led me to do. So if this, if this bores you because you already know it, I'm sorry. Just bear with me. All I have to believe is that there's somebody here today or listening online that God wants to hear this. But there are people that have pointed James chapter 2 to justify a works salvation. They have pointed to James chapter 2 to justify a works salvation. So let's get into James chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to have everyone turn to James chapter 2 because we're going to spend a little bit of time in this portion of Scripture. James chapter 2. We are going to start in verse 20 and read verse 20 through 21. All right, James chapter 2, 20 through 21. But wilt thou know, O vain, man, o vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? What? Abraham was justified by works? When he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Was not Abraham just... Now, it's important to understand what justification is, and I believe a lot of us know this as well, but we're going to go over this for the sake of knowing for sure what this means. Just the definition of justification or being justified comes from the Greek word dikosis, maybe, if that's how you pronounce it, but from a Greek word, something like that, and it is the act of pronouncing righteous. The act of pronouncing righteous. At the moment of salvation, Jesus Christ pronounces us righteous to God because of his shed blood on Calvary, washing away our sins, we are then made clean and pronounced righteous before God. Guess what? You're not getting into heaven unless you're justified. Amen. All right? There's no possible way. When we go to step into heaven and God looks at us to see if we're justified, he's going to see if Christ is truly in us and has forgiven us truly of our sins. And he's going to look into our hearts. And he's, if, he, if he just sees us, we're not going to make it. But if he sees Christ in us, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness, and we are justified in our salvation and belief in Jesus Christ. 
It is the act of pronouncing righteous. The sin debt that made us unrighteous has been forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are justified. If there is no justification, there is no salvation. It seems that James is saying that Abraham was justified by works. He was considered righteous before God through his works. That's what it seems when you first read this. Let's read James 2.24. It says, Ye see then how that by works a man is justified. Hmm. Ye see then that how by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was, was Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messenger and had sent them out another way. Now, if you remember the story of Rahab, she was the harlot in Jericho that hid the two spies that Joshua sent out to spy on the city of Jericho because Jericho was part of the promised land that God had promised to the nation of Israel. In order for them to inherit that promised land, they were going to have to drive out the inhabitants first. So Jericho were some of the inhabitants of the promised land. So, you know, they, had, they, know they, they knew they had to go to war against Jericho to defeat them, to drive them out. So the, Joshua sent the spies into Jericho. The men found out they were there. They started hunting them down. And Rahab hid these spies in her house and ultimately helped them escape. This is a righteous act that Rahab did for the nation of Israel. Remember, God said, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Well, God blessed Rahab, and he kept her and her family alive because of this righteous act that she did for God's people. But James says, Rahab was justified by her works of hiding the spies. You see how it seems that James is teaching a work salvation here, but what does Paul say about justification? Well, Paul says a lot, but we're not going to go into all that. We're just going to read a couple verses from Paul. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace, not works. By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For grace are you saved through faith, not that of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Romans three twenty eight. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, not works. You, justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So it seems that Paul is saying the opposite of what James is saying here. But through reading the James chapter 2 in context, we can see what James was really talking about. And this is a classic example of the importance of reading verses in context, understanding what the story is around that specific verse. Because we can, if we want, and many have and many do, Pull verses from the Bible to justify sin, to justify false doctrine, to justify all different types of things and say the Bible, and they're saying, yea, hath God said, when God hath, really, hath not really said, right? So, that is what is happening in this chapter as well. So we have to understand this chapter in its context. If you read the whole chapter of James 2, you will see how James was talking about treating those who were rich and wealthy differently than the way that the poor were being treated. Differently than the poor were being treated. James went as far as to say is, ye have despised the poor. You have despised the poor. J James then reminds them of the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. James is challenging the church over the way they were treating different classes of people. 
He was trying to make the point that if they are truly followers of Christ, then they would treat the poor the same way Christ did. They would treat the poor with the same respect as they treated the rich. There would be no respect of persons there. James 15 through 16. Let's read that. It says, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and if one of you say unto them, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful for the body, what doth it profit you? What doth it profit? James is making the point here that if your brother or sister lack the necessity of food and clothing, and you do not provide that for them, and you are able to provide that for them, what does it profit you? How can you say that you truly have faith in Christ if you're not willing to even meet these basic necessities of your brothers and sisters in Christ? You're not even willing to extend. You're able to, but you're not doing it. You say, go ahead, go your way, be filled, be warm, but I'm not going to help you with any of that. How can you say that that's real faith? What does this, what, what does this profit you? The point Paul, the point James was trying to make was that if they were, if they had true faith, that that faith would show itself in good works such as compassion and love for their fellow believers that were in need. James is refuting the belief that you could have faith without producing works. James 2, 17 through 26. Let's read that right now. We're going to go through there and we're going to kind of talk about that as we go. James 2, 17 through 26 says, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. So James is saying in this verse that if there's no evidence of good works to back up the faith, that you claim to have, then your faith is dead. Verse 18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without, my, without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James is trying to stress the fact that works are the byproduct of being justified or truly saved. That's the, that's the point he's trying to make, not the act. Works are not the act by which we receive salvation. Verse 19, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devil also believe in, in tremble. James is saying, you believe that there is one God. Good job. You're right. There is one God. You're, but, you know, even the demons believe that there's a God and tremble at his very presence. Just believing that God is real, just believing that there's one God, is not evidence that you're truly saved. That is not evidence that you truly have faith in Christ. It's a lot more than just believing that God exists. Verse 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Works are simply the evidence of our faith, James is saying. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac upon the altar. Now, this is the verse that seems to be teaching a work salvation, but let's look at verse 22 as I believe it explains this. Verse 22 says, Seest thou how faith wrought with his good works, and by works was faith made perfect. What this verse is saying is that Abraham's pre-established faith, pre-established faith gave birth to his works, not the other way around. His good works did not provide him with faith. His pre-established faith 
gave birth to his good works. Because of Abraham's works, his faith was made perfect. His faith was made perfect. It says, wrought with his works and works was and by works was faith made perfect. Abraham's works, his faith was made perfect. That is to say, his true faith in God was established beyond a shadow of a doubt as a result of the works that he showed forth in obedience to God and being willing to sacrifice his son upon that altar. His works proved he had a real and perfect faith. And that's the point James is trying to make here. Listen, he's saying, you guys aren't even taking care of the people in your own church. You're treating the, you're treating the poor like they're, they're dirt, they're scum. You're saying, sit by my footstool. You're giving the rich the, the, the best seats in the house. No, that's not true faith. Yeah, sure, you believe in God, but that's not evidence of the true faith. No, if, evidence of a true saving faith is you have works to back up that faith. And, and he was called, the last part of verse 23, and he was called a friend of God. Speaking about Abraham. Oh, did we completely missed verse 23, I think. Yep, let's, okay, let's read verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God. Now, this is the key verse here. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. James makes it very clear here that it was because he believed in God, had faith, that he was pronounced righteous, not because of his works. And he was called a friend of God. Verse 24. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the message and sent them down out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. If you do not have faith to back up your works, your faith is dead faith. James' whole point in this passage of Scripture is to target those in the church who had a superficial faith. A faith that is just made up of words and not backed up by actions to prove that their faith was real. James is not preaching a work salvation. He is, James is not preaching a work salvation. He is simply saying good works are the natural byproduct of saving faith. So we see that Paul and James do not disagree in their teachings. As we know, the Bible doesn't disagree. But Paul and James do not disagree in their teaching. They are just approaching the same issue from two different perspectives. The same issue from two different perspectives. Paul simply emphasizes that justification is by faith alone, while James emphasizes the fact that genuine faith will produce good works, not that you are saved by those good works. So the point I believe Paul was trying to make to the Colossians when he said, and knew the grace of God in truth is you have understood the truth of God's grace. And that truth is grace is enough. Grace is enough. Praise the Lord for his grace. I have a lot more here, but we are going to pick up with this next week. So today, we covered salvation brings immediate change. And a, the whole, and on to our last point, whole whopping two points we got through today, man, we were cooking. God's grace is enough. Salvation brings immediate change, and God's grace is enough. Let's pray.
You have been listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this message was a blessing and encouragement to you. If you would like more messages, visit our website at fbcclarklake.org, where all of our messages can be downloaded for free. Also, you can subscribe to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. All of our messages are available for free. If you want to keep up to date on what's going on at Fellowship, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, where you can see what's happening happening at Fellowship Baptist Church. If you'd like to visit us, Fellowship Baptist Church is located at 3200 Reed Road, Clark Lake, Michigan. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you back here again next time.